Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Dub to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. Today we're talking with our guests about IU graduate workers' attempt to unionize and what it can mean for the university. I'm joined by co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief at WFIU and WTIU. And we have three guests joining us today. We have Katie Shy, who's an IU Graduate Workers Coalition member. William A. Herbert is Distinguished Lecturer and Executive Director at the National Center for the Study of Collective Bargaining in Higher Education and the Professions at Hunter College. And Charles A. Trezenka is the James and Virginia Kozad Professor of Finance at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. If you have questions or comments, you, there are several ways you can contact us today. You can send us your email to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send us your questions there. Or you can join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811. So thank you all for being here. This has been a big issue in, in Bloomington for and on campus for the last – actually the last several years, but it's really picked up here in the last few months. Katie Shai, you're a member of the IU Graduate Workers Coalition. What is it the coalition is seeking? Yeah, first I just want to say thank you so much for having us on. Um, it's great to be able to share a little bit about our goals with you and your listeners. Mm -hmm. um, the coalition of grad workers at IU um, is really first and foremost seeking to make IU um, an excellent place for education and for research. Um, and the way that we believe we can get um, from where we are now into becoming that excellent place for teaching and research um, is by ending the fees that graduate workers pay uh, twice a year, uh, by paying graduate workers a living wage, by treating international students fairly, uh, by providing an effective grievance procedure for grad workers, um, and by improving our benefits package. Um, and ultimately, as a coalition, um, we've been going about uh, achieving these goals for, for several years now, and we've come to the realization that the best way that we can, uh, we can get there is by forming a union on campus. All right, so... Chuck, you wrote a column um, recently um, about this and why there are some downsides to it. What what do you what do you think about this idea of having a union for the graduate work? Oh, I don't think it's a good idea at all. Um, and I think in that column I mentioned that one of the the issues that's been ignored here is, or let's say lightly treated, is the who pays for it. Um, some departments will compete by paying students more, and, and those students largely are, are, are not um, um, abused or, or in, I mean, they're certainly not supportive of the union, at least the ones I, I talk to. Other departments need to op feel they need to open up and let more students in. And frankly, when you get a union that homogenizes this, you're going to end up with um, 
um, the inability of departments to adjust their educational mission to fit, fit w- what the talent are and the pool, the talent pool is. I had a second opposition, which was to this particular union, the one they, the one they chose, Union Electric, and we can talk more about that. But essentially, my argument is that uh, that the money and the homogeneity is going to reduce the ability of departments to actually design educational programs that serve students well. So I have the same goal as Katie. I seek to make uh, IU an excellent place. I seek to make it a uh, a better place. I think the union will will restrict its ability to do that. William A. Herbert is a distinguished lecturer and executive director of the National Center for the Study of Collective Bargaining in Higher Education and the Professions at Hunter College. You've done a lot of research on this, a lot of work on this. So when you hear you know, about um, graduate workers trying to form a union and a university that is uh, opposing that, I mean, you've seen that other places before, I assume. What are some things we should know? Well, first, thank you for inviting me to participate. Um, I run a labor management center um, that studies these these topics. So first thing to keep in mind is that currently there are about 100,000 graduate assistants who are unionized in the United States at universities across the country, um, including most recently MIT, Clark University, uh, New Mexico State University, and just yesterday at the University of Washington, there was a vote in favor of unionization by research assistants. So unionization, it's the, the effort to unionize at um, Indiana University is not unique at all. Um, and one of the things that our research shows is that a lot of the issues that uh, both both uh, Katie and uh, Chuck mentioned are actually have been dealt with in the context of collective bargaining. So the first unionization, successful unionization of graduate assistants occurred over 50 years ago at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Um, and they, they were in a situation where they uh, they uh, had an election held and they uh, voted, voted in favor and then they were voluntarily recognized. And then they negotiated a contract. Um, a part of that contract was um, uh, language about departmental differences. So collective bargaining can include departmental differences in terms of the context of, of collective bargaining. Um, secondly, our research, we've, we've done a, a study in, in 2020 of co- contracts around the United States in terms of graduate, graduate student uh, contracts. And we found that in 52 contracts that we examined, um, uh, the, con- the contract language had f- four things, which are the highest uh, percentages. One was graduate uh, grievance and arbitration, which Katie mentioned, were, was 100%, 100% of the contracts. Wages was also 100%. But most importantly, I think, going to, to Chuck's point, is that the contracts also, 97.6% of the contracts had management rights clauses, broad management rights clauses, allowing a lot greater flexibility than perhaps was suggested in Chuck's um, column. And then the last, which is related to what Katie was talking about, is the question of discrimination and grievance, uh, dealing with discrimination issues. And that was also 97.8% of the contracts. So collective bargaining is has been known for a century as a form of workplace democracy. It allows for people to vote for a representative in the workplace to then advocate on their behalf in, with, with regard to the employer. Um, it's been known, it's been it's structurally in, in the private sector and in the public sector, and it, is, it has worked in, in higher education. Now, you asked the question about um, opposition. Um, history has shown, and we've documented it in our, our scholarship, that uh, sometimes uh, institutions have have objected to it. Eventually, that uh, um, those objections get overturned and result in um, a uh, collective bargaining and um, and and, vol- and recognition of the union. Um, and as as a result, with regard to um, the questions of resistance, there hasn't been very much resistance over the past couple of years by any institution in higher education. Um, MIT stipulated to uh, there being a, a vote uh, by by their uh, um, by their graduate assistants. Um, all the other institutions have done. At this point, Indiana University is really an outlier in about how um, institutions are approaching collective bargaining. And so, just the the um, uh, important difference is in University of Michigan and Michigan State University. Their board of trustees just passed resolutions last year to agree to neutrality when it came to questions of, of uh, organizing on campuses. That's quite distinct from the Board of Trustees decision that was announced um, in the past week or two at, at Indiana University. 
I'm, I'm curious, why do you think this is happening now? Like, what is the atmosphere like on these college campuses that this has become an issue? Bill, if you want to react and then Chuck. Well, first, just remember that unionization by graduate assistants has been going on since 1969 over time. Um, and so it, we, we documented it. It's been, this is not, not anything new. What we're seeing though is that a lot of the reason is, is that, um, uh, graduate assistants need, need the compensation that they, um, in order to have a, li- a livable wage. Um, and they also need be- better benefits. Um, and they're, they're, at, and, and I think one underlying issue, and this is, something that's come up a lot um, with regard to issues at, at Harvard and at Columbia was the issue of uh, uh, grievance arbitration, particularly over discrimination issues, um, where rather than le- leaving it up to the uh, institution, um, um, you know, the, the university to make a final decision about whether someone has been subject to unlawful or, or uh, 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 some form of harassment, that that um, this would be decided by a neutral arbitrator. And that was a, what stimulated um, in many campuses um, the, the seeking unionization, which was to have a binding arbitration over questions of harassment and discrimination. So I, I, in addition to the points that Bill made, um, wasn't there a National Labor Relations Board decision in 2016 that allowed uh, graduate teachers, student teachers, to be considered employees? I think that also spurred this along uh, because it, for a long time, I mean, when I was a graduate student, I wasn't—I was paid a fraction of the of the national national income um, of the average wage, and and it, it, students have been underpaid for a long time. Uh, but I think the you know this, the push has been recent uh, for sure. I mean, you might want to comment on that NLRB decision. Sure. Um, well, just keep in mind that um, the legalities are that um, there are, there are uh, private sector laws and public sector laws. In the yeah. private sector, there's been back and forth um, um, in, on the federal sector of whether or not um, um, whether our graduate assistants were employees. But even before this recent decision, uh, Chuck's mentioning at Columbia University, New York University voluntarily recognized the union and ha- agreed to an election and, and, and voluntarily recognized the union there in, in, in 2015. So um, it doesn't, the fact that the law um, treats, treats uh, uh, allows for classification of about to be employees does not prohibit um, collective bargaining. In the public sector, the, the, uh, which Indiana University is subject to, the public sector, the overall uh, um, laws that, that um, cover public sector collective bargaining uh, uniformly have recognized that graduate assistants are employees for purposes of collective bargaining. This, that, this dates back to decisions in, in uh, the late 60s in, in New York and also in New Jersey. Uh, and, and subsequently in uh, Iowa and in, in other, in California and other states in the public sector at large universities, R1 universities, uh, public sector, uh, graduate assistants have been found to be employees again for decades. I don't want to squeeze Katie out. No, a quick comment on yeah. something that Bill said. NYU did recognize it in 2015, and then what they did was they eliminated all graduate student teaching. So right now, you when you get a PhD from from NYU, you don't teach. They ask you to teach one course. You take a a, 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 a seminar for it, but it's not required. They don't use graduate student teachers, mm-hmm. and and in the finance department where I am, we don't use graduate. I mean, we we only require three courses in five years or six years. And frankly, our competition, a lot of our competition only requires one. So we, we could easily eliminate all of our graduate student teachers. And it, the union wouldn't matter then because they're not, they wouldn't be in, in, uh, employees under that NLRB decision. But some, well, I mean, here on campus, I mean, some departments probably rely on them a lot. Katie, Katie may want to speak to that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Katie, I, you've heard a lot from um, both. Bill and Chuck now, um, you can react to any of it. Uh, and if you don't, ha- you know, I-, I have other questions I can ask you too. But but first of all, is there something you want to react to? Yeah. Um, on the question of why now and why so many broad efforts across the country, um, I think that we really see ourselves as part of um, growing frustration with the way that um, funding for universities like Indiana University so often doesn't um, end up in the classroom, but rather ends up supporting 
um, salaries for for upper administrators. Um, I think that's a real uh, shared frustration driving many of these graduate student efforts, um, as well as just the overall climate of organizing in this country. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners um, have been in a job where their employer keeps asking them to do more and more things, um, keeps making more and more off their labor, um, but they haven't seen a corresponding increase in their pay. Um, most, The vast majority of grad workers at IU didn't see a raise of any kind um, between 2014 and 2020. Um, and so it's, it's difficult materially just to make those realities work. I want to I want to mention, and Katie, I'm going to ask for your reaction first to what I'm going to say. But uh, we did ask the provost to come on today, and we got a statement from uh, IU spokesperson Chuck Carney. Uh, on behalf of the IU Board of Trustees as well, which says, uh, good faith efforts to improve the graduate student experience and address concerns of the faculty are essential not only for the graduate students themselves, but for the health and strength of IU. We will work diligently and collaboratively to address the lingering and substantive concerns raised by the students and faculty. Such collaboration has already yielded positive, important improvements regarding SAA pay, tuition waivers, and reconstitution of the SAA uh, Affairs Committee and the Bloomington Faculty Council. Yet these initial steps must be followed with additional reforms developed collaboratively with students, faculty, and staff. Through the Task Force on Graduate Education, six separate working groups will pursue long-term sustainable solutions while also making recommendations for swift action this summer. As Provost Shrivastav wrote this week, uh, there was actually a news release last night. Pursuit of collective bargaining change may be difficult, but we have an opportunity to build on our strengths and chart a transformational future for graduate education at IU. So as a student who's working on these unionization efforts, when you get that kind of reaction from the university that seems to be saying, yes, they they agree with a lot of your positions, they want to help uh, be part of the solution, why does this not go far enough? Um, this doesn't go far enough because it feels like more of the same, um, more of the same um, efforts to seek input from a vast array of stakeholders on campus, um, but that input isn't treated as as meaningful advice, um, as input that should be acted on by the administration. Um, for the last few years, as the coalition has been trying to improve our living conditions um, and ensure that we can provide an excellent education for our students, excellent research for our mentors, um, these are the mechanisms that the university has been offering us, um, committees, task forces, uh, and they've not been adequate for producing the kind of change we need to see on campus. Um, and what's been really exciting about this last year is um, there really have been collaborations um, among the grad workers, and then most recently, um, the Bloomington Faculty Council's overwhelming resolutions um, supporting the establishment of a graduate student union on campus. Um, and so we feel that, you know, these bodies that can provide input into the direction of the university um, already exists, right? 1,800 grad workers have signed union cards asking to be represented by the union. Um, and our faculty has indicated that um, collectively through the, the body that they have, Bloomington Faculty Council, through the shared governance system that's set up, um, that they see a union on campus as the best solution moving forward. Um, and so we are certainly receptive to a dialogue with the administration um, and appreciate their commitment to doing more. But we put forth that that dialogue should be with the established body that the graduate workers have chosen and that the Bloomington Faculty Council is standing behind as well. All right. Thank you. Chuck, reaction to that? Well, um, I, I should begin by saying I'm not 
I, I'm not part of the administration. Right. I haven't talked to anybody, anybody in the trustees or anybody in the administration. I'm just a guy with an opinion. <laughs> so take it for what it's worth. I, I think Katie's response about about not um, about the university um, not re- preferring the union to versus versus a history. Keep in mind, this is a new administration. So much of the problem if you view this as a problem, was created by the previous guys, not by not by these people. Uh, and frankly, if the I think if the previous group had done what this group had done, uh, like Witten and, and Srivastav, uh, I, I think that there might not be such a demand for the union. I don't know. That's a that's just a hypothetical. But but I mean, they haven't had a lot of chance. Uh, at this point, to actually respond in 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 ways that that are productive, and and they are appear appear to be doing now. Mm-hmm. We got a comment on Twitter from Nora saying that IU has paid sixteen point <coughs> three million dollars to forty five administrators and faculty. Um, um, so then she goes on to say, how have grad workers been? Making finances and life work on IU pay. That's a that's a Katie decision, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I can address that. But Katie, go ahead. <laughs> um, it's it's been very difficult for grad workers to to make ends meet on IU pay, um, especially given um, on top of the precarity that we were already facing right then the pandemic. Um, Over the last few years, dramatic increases in the cost of living in Bloomington, um, runaway inflation, especially over the last few months. Um, It's it's not easy, especially for grad workers who are facing, um, you know, supporting dependents or managing their own uh, pre-existing health conditions. Um, And the result is that uh, the amount of time, the amount of labor, the amount of emotional work that goes into um, dealing with inadequate compensation um, means that the teaching and research that's being done uh, is not what it should be. It's not what graduate students want to be giving to Indiana University. How um, are... I'm sorry, to, go ahead. I'll let you <laughs> oh, no, I just wanted to say quickly that um, IU has been producing research over the last few years on how... Um, graduate students should be compensated uh, more fairly. And they've done extensive reporting internally um, on the dire need for increasing um, compensation, for raising our living standards. Um, and so it it's encouraging that there's a new administration that may be willing to interface with us in a new way. Um, but it doesn't mean that the university hasn't been aware of the problems that we're facing um, and hasn't had the opportunity to to set up the new administration to address them. Over the past five years, rents have gone up 25 percent and and inflation obviously is raging now. And of course, it hits people who are lower income. So there's no question that Katie's right about the cost of living. these, These stipends probably do need to change. But keep in mind, there are some people who are willing to take low stipends because they want the edu- I mean, music pays, I don't know, I heard $8,000. How did they get people to take that? Well, they, they, the violinists or the pianists can, can work with, you know, Andre Watts. So they're willing to do that. So that's what I talked about when the opening. Uh, there's some departments that want to open up and let a lot of people in, and there's some departments who want, who will pay more, and we, we in finance department, we got to pay more. I mean, some of our competition offers fifty thousand a year, and and for twenty hours a week, uh, we 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 have to compete with them. So we do pay more. So can uh, and, and the union the union homogenizes too much of this. That's my problem with it. Yeah, well, I guess that's. My, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's just the the reality is is that. Um, the homogenization that you're describing is actually not a, a, uh, a an end solution that always happens. That there, in fact, you can develop uh, bargaining where you deal with department by department. Um, I, ironically, Yale University, when graduate assistants tried to organize and, and seek to negotiate on the departmental level, Yale University challenged that and successfully got those units thrown out. So. 
sort of administrations can't have it both ways, say we should w- do it on a departmental <coughs> level, um, or we want diversity and be able to, to um, negotiate at a departmental level and then ch- challenge it in, in another in, in another institution. So that's, that's one issue. I wanted to go back, though, for a second to the um, announcement um, that was circulated yesterday. One of the things that I, as an outsider, just as, a, as an academic observing the situation, is that the question, the the the, um, the question that I don't understand, and and pardon me for being just looking at it from the outside, but the, Indiana University in 1966 adopted on its own volition a collective bargaining program known as Conditions for Cooperation. It's called it's HR 12-20, and it's on its website. And the Board of Trustees in 1966 adopted it, and it's apparently success, successfully resulted in collective bargaining on campus since then. Um, and when uh, in reviewing the materials that have been circulated by the <coughs> trustees and by the provost, I don't see any interest in evaluating and doing research about uh, the condition of a corporation or why it can't be extended to deal with graduate assistance. It's worked apparently has worked for other people on campus working on campus. Why couldn't it be extended uh, as modified um, for graduate assistance? Um, that's the first question. Um, this, the second question is, or second point I want to make is that the um, the history about compensation for graduate assistance and studies upon studies, that's exactly what happened at the University of Wisconsin prior to the unionization in 1969. There had been discussions for at least a decade on that campus over graduate student compensation, and um, there were studies issued and really nothing was done, which then precipitated a unionization effort. And what happens in union, it, what happens when this collective bargaining is that it, it makes parties have to sit across the table from each other and actually make proposals on both sides. University has a chance to make proposals. The union has an opportunity to make proposals. And then they negotiate those proposals. So some of the issues that are a concern, including departmental differences, those could all be dealt with at the bargaining table. But the difference between having discussions as being proposed and going to be happening, which is good, discussions are great, and it's really wonderful that task force has been formed, but that's very different than actually negotiating. Um, and, and part of negotiations is a very different um, uh, difference in terms of power dynamic because at the bargaining table, the union and the administration are treated as equal for purposes of, of bargaining. In a situation where it's a task force, it's, it's not the same thing, and, and the, the, the uh, university would still retain the discretion to do, do what it decides at the end of those discussions. In contrast, in collective bargaining, it results in a contract which is then enforceable through grievance arbitration. And that contract would then lay out in clear terms, negotiated clear terms, the terms and conditions of employment that uh, has been discussed already. I want to give our numbers and our contact information. We're having a very robust conversation today about the IU graduates graduate workers attempt to unionize. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or on Twitter, at Noon Edition. You can send questions there as well. Or you can join us on the air. You can call in, join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811. Chuck, did you want to respond? Yeah, I wanted to respond a little bit to what Bill said. One of the reasons why the 1966 uh, agreement probably why they're ignoring it, I think is what you basically said, is that um, this is now a right-to-work state. So we don't, students don't have to join. Uh, the union will not represent everybody. Uh, and, and frankly, that's not clear how that's going to work here because you will have groups of students that just won't pay the dues. And, and so, I mean, those are fees. Why, why would they pay? So the, um, and as Katie said, the fees are too high here. So the, the, I, I, I think the right to work, many of these places that have, are unionized are in states with, with, with closed shops. Uh, and, and I'm, when I was in a union, I was in a state with a closed shop. But at Indiana, they don't have to join. So, so we're, we'll have groups of students who will be part of the union and groups of students who won't. Uh, and the groups of students who are not part of the union will have individual, presumably, I guess the same contract. I don't know. I don't know exactly how that works. Bill, if I can ask you a, a follow-up real quick. It, it feels to me that grad workers trying to unionize is different than <clears throat> electrical workers or other groups who might try to unionize. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? And I, I, I guess I'm sort of 
you know, noticing that everyone is talking about total compensation rather than just a wage. So maybe. Well, let's just, um, just, uh, I'll be happy to answer that question about differences. What, what are the primary differences that, and, and it's actually similarities in, in today's economy is that, um, uh, there's a big a big problem of ma- of misclassification involving what's known as independent contractors. People like Uber drivers, et cetera, have been trying to unionize, and employers or, or Uber, et cetera, challenges saying you're you're an independent contractor and you're misclassified. Graduate assistants have faced the same issue over the decades of misclassification as being not employees, and that's been kind of the the rub that goes on that's gone on in terms of the, the law. Um, but ultimately, virtually every public sector law that's been that, that exists and has been found that eventually has been found that uh, graduate assistants are employees and and so um that if that is <laughs> you know or if they research yeah. research assistants and teaching assistants yeah. and research assistants continue to be employed at nyu and other places but also on the issue of right to work that's really uh, uh not not correct um Florida, for example, is one of the oldest right-to-work states in the country. It also happens to have a very high level of union density in higher education, including graduate assistants at, all, at, at, at R1 schools and R2 schools in Florida. So the fact that it's a right-to-work um, environment does not preclude uh, unionization. It changes the dynamic, as Chuck is saying, about whether or not someone's going to pay their dues, but that's, that's a separate issue to whether or not they should have the right to engage in collective bargaining. And so, and now let's, let's want to go back to the question about graduate assistance being different. That's been said about a lot of other people, a lot of other people who work. You know, at one time it was said that teachers were not, were professionals and they shouldn't, shouldn't unionize. But in Indiana, teachers have the right to collectively bargain. It's, it's in the public sector statute. Um, other, other groups of, of people who are employed have been alleged that, that it's inappropriate to, 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 um, bargain, including public sector workers. Uh, there's a whole litany of, of types of people who are not industrial workers. You know, people who work um, in, in, in factories and, and other shops. But frankly, because of deindustrialization, um, a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of really high-paying jobs have been eliminated because of federal policies that encourage deindustrialization. So people have moved to other kinds of jobs. And so you have a situation where the economy has changed, and, and, and though people are working and, getting, and, and, and are compensated for their work, um, are now seeking to, are, are continuing to seek to unionize. So it's really a, 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 a continuation of something that's been going on for decades. So let me give you a big way that graduate students can be different than other people on campus. University has graduate student housing. We don't have housing for electricians. Uh, and, and that graduate student housing could be part of a compensation for students. You could get – you. It wouldn't be taxed, uh, and and they wouldn't have to run around the community with looking uh, for expensive um, um, apartments. Uh, landlords, by the way, I've had some conversation with landlords. They do support unionization here because <laughs> they want to charge them more. Uh, so the university could expand its graduate student housing. Uh, and, and that's some place where, where, where y- you could end up with – um, dramatically increasing the the compensation, even though the number doesn't change. Once again, that's a that's a question. Will the will if you've got a union contract, will that count? What what will what will happen? And and this is another place where the flexibility will be reduced for the administration. Again, I'm not a administration well, spokesman, well, well. And, and they don't want me to be. But but I think it it it's a big difference. Not not to mention, of course, the education. Or it could be collective bargaining, sitting down and listening to what the workers have to say and what the administration has to say, can come up with solutions that haven't been thought of before and provide for things like a benefit, a housing benefit, which is a, it would be um, a, a term and condition that they would be provided for, and that may change the, the pie about uh, uh, a compensation, that would be a new form of compensation. That's exactly the kind of thing that can be accomplished through negotiations. <coughs> Um, and, and, and so it, this is, this is a sort of an argument really in favor of, uh, the university proceeding with following through with, um, HR 1220 and, and, and adopting a collective bargaining program for its graduate assistants. 
I want to bring Katie Shy back in the conversation, uh, the IU Graduate Workers Coalition member. Uh, you know, you've been listening to our two other guests, but I also wanted to ask you, so what? what is the coalition doing this summer in preparation for next fall? I mean, the administration, the, the trustees sent out a, a pretty direct uh, memo about what they think. Uh, the provost has sent out a note last night about what he thinks and what, what the his task force is doing. What's the coalition doing? Yeah, I mean, the first thing we're doing is trying to keep track of all these different communications, <laughs> all these different moving pieces. Um, we're really at a, a high point right now as a coalition um, coming off of this month-long strike where we had over a thousand people um, withholding their labor from the university. Um, there's so much energy right now in our group heading into into the fall where, as I'm sure you know, we have um, a strike deadline set up for September. Um, and so we're, we're getting ready for that next that next action, um, which hopefully we can enter dialogue with the administration um, to avoid. Um, but in addition to, to capitalizing on all of the energy, all of the participation, all of people's dedication to coming together and um, achieving that bargaining relationship with the administration, um, we're send spending the summer setting up um, our local chapter of the UE Union. Um, so really laying in place what we need to be a permanent and reliable presence on campus um, in future semesters. So we're writing bylaws, we're electing leadership, um, we're getting ready to check in with our incoming grad students. Um, so a lot of really exciting initiatives uh, in terms of growing our membership um, and we're also thinking about um, ways that our, our strike in the fall can um, involve, can be really um, even broader and even more effective than, than our strike in the spring. Um, again, not because uh, this is something that we want to do, but because we believe that this is uh, the, the way to show the administration that grad workers have chosen to be represented by a union. Uh, our faculty have said they support the union on campus. Our undergrads robustly supported us on the picket line last semester. Um, and so we're, we're getting ready to demonstrate that commitment again. I want to read a comment we got from one of our listeners. This actually came out before the show began. Uh, from Chantel uh, Cagle, it says, I don't have a question for Noon Edition, but I want to say that I'm very disappointed in the IU trustees and IU provosts whose at attitude towards the graduate student workers has been dismissive and punitive. That attitude is antithetical to the way an academic institution should behave towards the workers who are also students who will represent IU in their future careers. These workers are the backbone of a university teaching, grading, supporting research for which their professors will receive recognition. My support is with the students. So I just wanted to read that comment. Um, I wanted to ask Bill about uh, something you said very early in the show, some for the commonalities among um, where there are bargaining, where the universities where bargaining is going on. You mentioned the management rights clauses are in about 97 percent of uh, these agreements. You mentioned a little bit about what some management rights clauses are. Can you be a little more specific about what kinds of things would show up in, a, in an agreement? Um, well, it, well, in, in management rights clause or in general? In management Consumer. rights clauses, yeah. Management rights clauses, it, it, it allows for, and it's, this, again, it's something that's negotiated. So part of the bargaining would be that um, the uh, union would be advocating for certain uh, language about arbitration grievances. And chip, uh, typically in, in all forms of collective bargaining, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, industrial setting or university setting, um, employers will come in and, and propose a management rights clause that has to be agreed upon. And the, the uh, management rights clause basically sets out the um, leeway that the that an employer can what the employer can engage in without further negotiations, 
And this frequently includes things particularly about um, uh, um, uh, issues about finances, about how they, they apply their finances outside of the question of collective bargaining. It could also be uh, a management rights clause dealing with um, the, uh, discipline and other matters. Um, so it, 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 the, the management rights clauses, by definition, can vary from contract to contract, but it's essentially preserving for the institution the ability to make decisions over mission, programs, objectives, activities, um, and, and, and resource uh, prioritization. Those are the kind of things that are covered by a management rights clause. Okay. So t t t typically what it doesn't I mean. I don't know these, but um, we com I come back to the issue of opening up your departments like the music school has. They've got a certain amount of money available for graduate students. They just decide to divide it over far, far more people because they want, you know, they want violinists and oboists and, and pianists and that sort of thing. And, it, it, and these are a lot of talented people. They, I, I suspect they would not have the right to do that without an increase in their budget. And, of course, that comes back to my original point. Where is the money going to come from? Mm -hmm. Well, you, Chuck, the business school could help the musicians. That would be there great. There we go. <laughs> hey, 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 you know what? Help. I'll contribute no, to the I business mean, school. Love, How's that? We, That's we I'll write a check music. to the music school. <laughs> <laughs> we all love music. I'm just joking. There we, we all go. Love music. <laughs> I love music. Bill, can you can – you, I just want to follow up. You mentioned gig ac academia. <clears throat> academia. Um, can you talk a little bit about what what you mean by that and how grad programs are managed? Right. Well, um, there's a phrase that's been used by, I think, coined by um, a professor at University of Southern California um, called the Gig Academy. And the, the, the notion of the Gig Academy is that increasingly, substantially over the decades, um, the, the people who are doing their uh, teaching um, and research are primarily people who are not on the tenure track, and that will include graduate assistants, will include postdocs, and include adjunct faculty, all of whom are, are paid at a much lower level and have very little, have no job security um, in comparison to the tenure track. And so the, right now, um, uh, statistics show that over 75% of the people who teach are teaching, who, uh, and including graduate assistants, are not a part of the tenure track. Um, system and that's been a part, and that part of that has been caused by um, decisions made about finances. Um, basically, the uh, the idea of being able to provide for education by people who are not going to be uh, uh, will not be there for a long period of time and we paid very low amounts that allows for resources to be distributed elsewhere um, in terms of of uh, other priorities that a university may have other than teaching and research. So instead of paying people um, who are teaching and, and research uh, salaries that would allow them to have a live, uh, really be able to have a, uh, a livable wage and, and, and a lifestyle, they move that re those resources to other matters. And that's that's the, the, the definition of the gig, the gig academy, basically people who are working um, on a, a, in a um, precarious kind of employment setting uh, in contrast to the tenure track and tenured faculty who have um, greater benefits and certainly have a greater degree of job security. Chuck, do you see this uh, on campus here? Oh, yeah. I mean, half our department are non-tenure track faculty, although they're permanent. They're, they're paid well. Uh, we have to hire them from other schools. Uh, so, I mean, the gig depends on who you are. I want to add something to something to what Katie said. Uh, Katie talked about what the students are doing uh, over this summer. Let me tell you what the faculty are doing. There's a, at least what I know of, there's, this, there's a letter that's circulating um, that neither Bill nor Katie would probably have access to. One more thing, Katie, you've got to pay attention to. Uh, it's a letter signed by 229 people. It expresses um, strong disagreement with what the trustees are, have, have said. Um, all of those 229 people are from the College of Arts and Sciences, where you would probably find the gig economy, gig economy being, or the gig faculty being more uh, more prominent. Uh, and of course, this is where students are. They they teach more, they have less prospects, they take longer to get out. And so, of course, this is related to other parts of of what 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 I use doing. But that that letter will 
I mean, I've got a copy here if you want it. I'm not sure. It's, I'm not going to read it, but but it does. It says they're very strong uh, in terms of uh, of not supporting what the trustees say. I'm curious about faculty right now, how they are approaching fall. Are they? Because I know at the end of the semester there was some chaos in some units. And so. some, not in ours. Yeah. Remember our student, we don't teach with students. We, we don't have that many students teaching. Not in the business school, which is, you know, a lot of students. Uh, probably not in SPIA, probably not in the School of Public Health, but in the College of Arts and Sciences where most of these, actually all 229 looked like they were in the College of Arts and Sciences. Yes, there were some chaos. Yeah, and so it will continue. With the fall, are they approaching it as, are they coming up with contingencies? for how to I cover so. some of these classes. Yeah. Um, Katie, can you can you talk about some of the listening sessions you've had with the provost or with administration, just how how those conversations have gone? And, I mean, is there any progress? The listening sessions have been um, an overwhelmingly frustrating experience for the grad workers uh, who have attended um, the first one that the provost held, uh, he actually, about an hour in, uh, asked if there were any questions not related to the issue of, of compensation or the union. Um, and there wasn't anywhere else for the conversation to go. Uh, and so, you know, as one of the grad workers who's in the audience, um, for the provost to close off the thing that every single worker in the room is bringing as their main question um, is just like more evidence that the administration doesn't really realize like where we're at as a campus, um, as a graduate student body. Um, We've overwhelmingly said, uh, here's the path that we see forward um, negotiating with the union. Um, And so while these listening sessions um, have, have certainly been widely publicized in the materials that the provost is giving the faculty, um, the other campuses, as evidence that he's uh, engaging with us. From the perspective of a graduate student, um, there haven't been any any meaningful consequences of the listening sessions, and they've actually um, not even really been fair listening. We have about five minutes to go in the program. Katie, I wanted to ask you about, you know, the differences between departments and schools, as, as Chuck just mentioned. Um, in your graduate students in the coalition, do you see students from all different departments? And, and are, there, are there meaningful differences in terms of, you know, the kinds of uh, expectations, the kind of pay, those kind of things from department to department or school to school? Mm-hmm. That's been um, one of the most empowering experiences about coming together in the coalition is getting to really share the perspectives of multiple departments and multiple schools with one another. Um, We've talked about Jacobs a lot this hour, and um, as, as has been mentioned, right, conditions in Jacobs are especially impossible to survive on. Um, students in Jacobs work multiple extra jobs, right? Some of them sell their plasma. Um, it's really not a sustainable solution, and it's not something that, that we should be like proud of as an educational opportunity right now. Um, in terms of differences in like what we're asking for across different programs, um, we're Really, each of us are paying, you know, over $700 a semester in mandatory fees. For international students, that's over $2,000 a year. Um, And that gives us a vast um, common ground to start from as we're thinking about what our workloads look like, uh, what different people's relationships with their advisors look like, um, what our different teaching loads look like. Um, So I would say that Ultimately, the the process of uh, thinking about what different departments need has 
really just illuminated like how important it is that we all have this democratic representation on campus, um, a way to advocate for ourselves with the administration. We have three minutes to go, so I want to give each of you one minute to kind of wrap up. And I want to start with uh, Bill uh, William A. Herbert, Distinguished Lecturer, Executive Director, National Center for the Study of Collective Bargaining and Higher Education and the Professions at Hunter College. You've heard a lot of conversation today. One minute to wrap up the most important takeaways? I think the most important takeaway is that um, right now the, the uh, Indiana University is really uh, approaching this subject very different than other institutions around the country. Um, and that I think if, if they did a study, as part of their study, if they looked at what has gone on in negotiations and collective bargaining at other institutions and why institutions like MIT and University of Washington have not had a problem with unionization um, of, their, of their graduate assistants, perhaps by doing that research and studying the industry um, and, and how the approach and the contracts that have been negotiated, maybe that research will lead them to a different conclusion than objecting to uh, unionization um, on campus at Indiana University. All right. Chuck, one minute. I think I, I think union is a bad idea for IU. Uh, I think that the way that uh, both shared governance and how departmental competition has evolved around here is, is, is a better use of resources. And so, and I, again, I think particularly object to this particular union, but, but union, this unionization in general, I think that uh, the trustees are right and uh, imposing this as is the administration and I'm not a spoke I'm not involved with them I'm not a spokesman for them but I, I think this is the correct path to go on Katie final word one minute uh, we as graduate workers at IU um, want to teach and want to provide the best education that we can for the students at IU for the state of Indiana um, we know that IU has the money and we know that IU uh, says that graduate education and work is a, a priority. Um, we simply want them to make good on that promise. Um, the graduate workers, the faculty, the Bloomington community, uh, all of these voices are united in agreeing that the union is the best solution. Um, and we're really looking forward to hopefully productive conversations to that end as we close out the summer and move into the fall. All right. Thank you very much to Katie Shy, Bill Herbert, and Chuck Trezenka for joining us today on this uh, very arousing conversation about um, the Graduate Student Workers Union uh, hopes and possibilities. I want to thank our engineer, Mike Pashkash, our producers, Benta Boutier, Holden Ampshire, and Kathy Knapp for co-host Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or IntegrityFirstInsuranceServices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. <laughs>